You may be seated. It's good to see so much Reformation red today. Some of you have probably uh, questioned my footwear choice, but if it's good enough for the angel up there lifting the tomb off Jesus' grave, I can wear my red Air Jordans. Let's pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for your word, which sets us free. This morning, we ask that you write your word, your law, your son on our hearts, that you fill us with your spirit, that you might empower us to live after the example of Jesus. Now let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Martin Luther, the theologian that we Lutherans here take our name from, spent most of the year 1522 tucked away and hiding in the mountains of central Germany in the fortress, the Wartburg Castle. It's what Luther was thinking of when he wrote A Mighty Fortress. Now, in late 1521, the year prior, Luther had his famous Here I Stand moment. He was summoned by the Holy Roman Empire. He had a a government meeting before the emperor himself, and he said, here I stand, I can do no other. My conscience is held captive to the word of God. Now, he was promised safe passage to and from the meeting, begrudgingly, but on the return journey home, he was kidnapped, and he was whisked away to this castle to be kept in hiding, and he was done this for his own good. It was actually his government protector, Frederick the Wise, who kidnapped him and hid him away. Now, while in this period of quarantine, Luther grew out his beard, he took up an alias, he spent most of his days translating the New Testament into German, allowing for his fellow Germans to hear it and read it themselves for the first time. But this period of uh, safety and peace for Luther didn't last all that long. You see, once the Reformation cat was out of the bag, so to speak, and people found out that they could indeed break with the Catholic Church of the time and actually live to tell the story, all sorts of factions and splits and divisions and leaders began to interpret scripture on their own, and they attempted to do church in their own way. And so the denominational splintering of Christianity began. And 500 years later, there are more interpretations and more Christian denominations than we could probably begin to count. This is perhaps one of the biggest unintended and most unfortunate side effects of the Reformation is how divided we are as a Protestant church. Now, Luther felt compelled to end his period in hiding and return to his home base, the city of Wittenberg, after one of his closest allies, one of the people he trusted most, a fellow professor and theologian by the name of Andreas Karlstadt began to go rogue. Karlstadt started a program of iconoclasm in the city of Wittenberg. Iconoclasm is uh, when uh, people go into church and rip out all of the artwork and all of the icons and all of the images in a church service. He would, this guy Karlstadt would essentially preach and whip up a mob and then essentially raid a church to cleanse it and purify it of any images. Now, uh, Taylor, if you don't know Taylor, Taylor's our production manager running the live stream in the back. Taylor, how would you feel if someone went over to the 927 Faith Center and ripped out all of our nice lights? Not good. He's chuckling back there. How would we feel if someone came and ripped out our nice triptych behind the altar? Not good. Not good. That would be the comparison to what was happening in this time. 
If you've ever been to a Protestant church before with whitewashed walls, this is sort of the historical origin moment of that. Some Protestant interpreters of scripture early on in the Reformation go so far as to suggest that any decoration at all can be idolatrous and can lead us to worship creation in its beauty over and above the creator and his majesty. It's a very no-fun zone version of Christianity. And so Luther returned and stopped this movement in its violence and destruction and began to teach something different, that images and arts and icons can, in fact, have their place in a life of faith. As long as we don't worship those things in themselves, they can help us understand scripture, ourselves, and they can even help point us to God. But we've got to realize that no one image encapsulates everything about Jesus or God or the Holy Spirit. Artwork, images, Luther writes, are neutral. They can be used to direct people to God or distract them away. And I found a really fun quote from Luther this morning to support this. In his treatise against Karlstadt, he writes this. Yes, would to God that I could persuade the rich and mighty that they would permit the whole Bible to be painted on houses, on the inside and the outside, so that all can see it. That would be a Christian work. I hope all of you have paintbrushes at home. Luther's logic here is twofold. First, we humans are composite creatures, right? To humans, we have a material part of ourselves and a spiritual part of ourselves. And these things are combined, composite, and they can't be separated. It's who we are, it's how we're created. And so when we hear or read something, we already are naturally artists, right? We form images in our hearts and in our imagination of what something would look like. So in response to this, because we are material creatures and because God knows this all too well, Jesus left us with the sacraments, physical signs and symbols that affect spiritual change, that come into our heart and speak to us so powerfully not just because the Spirit is within them, but also because they testify to our embodied materiality. God literally gives us what we need at the altar and in baptism to help grow our hearts and increase our faith and our fellowship with one another. The physical things of this world, art, images, bread, wine, and water, can have spiritual ramifications. Now I'm bringing all of this up this morning because there exists an impulse that finds its origin in ancient Greek philosophy. It's this, that the material world, all of it from top down, is bad, rotten. Now this was a thought that was foreign to the mind of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. But this Greek thought fused with Christianity in its early centuries in the Roman Empire, and it still haunts us today. And so there's a real temptation within Christianity to fully and completely turn away from the world and from earthly things, to leave this life behind, to become disconnected from our earthly lives. This is why some Christians you may encounter feel guilt or shame over, I don't know, having fun and enjoying themselves and enjoying creation. 
Spiritually, these folks may feel exceedingly righteous and they may perform their spirituality with bravado and overconfidence. But from the outside looking in, their faith is actually starved and malnourished. Luther called folks like these, like this guy Karlstadt and his followers, like those people who today still want to go around and disconnect faith and life, Luther called them enthusiasts, sarcastically. These folks get riled up about holy living, but in doing so, they seem to leave a real and embodied life, a healthy life, behind. A rhetorical question. These folks might be pumped up for Jesus, no doubt a good thing, but are they the same people you would like to spend your Saturday afternoon tailgate with? Are they the people that you want to do life together with? Question to think about. Instead, I believe the example of Jesus and the teachings of Scripture point to a spirituality that is healthy precisely in its material, embodied nature. Luther picks this up himself and makes it an emphasis of the Reformation movement. God, in the beginning, called creation good and very good. Jesus' first miracle in the Gospel of John, I'll remind you, is turning water into wine so a wedding party can continue. Jesus uses the example of a wedding feast over and over in the Gospel to tell us what the kingdom of heaven, what the kingdom of God, should look like. The Spirit comes to abide within us and within bread and wine and water. This brings me now to our text of the day from the prophet Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah has been known in the Christian tradition as the weeping prophet. He's all very doom and gloom. Just peruse Jeremiah for a few moments. This is a happy part of Jeremiah. Most of Jeremiah is not happy. He was active during the days, the last days, of the kingdom of Judah in the 5 and 600s BCE. And he spent much of his ministry trying to convince the leaders of the day that they were doomed if they continued on their current course. He came to be reviled by the king and seen as a pest by the other prophets and priests of the time who made their living by lulling people into a sense of false security. Everything was going to be okay. Perhaps most insidiously, they wielded God's law as a weapon to keep them separate and apart so they could create a society where the rich remain immoral and they prosper because of it, and the poor become lower and lower and downtrodden and forgotten. Far from the dream that God had envisioned for his people when he made the covenant with Noah, with Abraham, with Moses, and with David. And if this feels familiar to us in our contemporary moment today, maybe we should be squirming in our seats a little bit. And so Jeremiah's cautions fell on deaf ears and his predictions came to pass. In the year 587, the kingdom of Judah was conquered by Babylon. The remaining Jewish people were carried off into exile. The first Jewish temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. It was an apocalyptic end to the promise of God's kingdom amongst Abraham and David's descendants. But all hope, however was not lost. In that reading today from Jeremiah, God tells the people of the hope of a new covenant, one different than those first covenants with Noah and Abraham and Moses and David. The newness is found in this, 
this new covenant is, for the most part, one-sided deal, where God pledges both to be faithful to us, no matter our response, but also to be forgetful of our wrongs, a continual fresh start. This shouldn't surprise us, though, if we flip through the pages of Scripture, we always find God turning back to the people in great love and great forgiveness, time and time again. But the newness of this covenant is also found in its method of transmission. God's law will now be written not externally on stone tablets, but internally within, on the heart. And all people, Jeremiah says, from the least to the greatest, will know God. You see, with this new covenant, we're no longer going to need to cling to a rule list of do's or don'ts, of rights or wrongs. Instead, the new covenant is built and maintained and sustained upon a continuous relationship with God. We are to know God throughout all our lives, from our first morning cry to our last breath, in all of our lows and our highs, and yes, even in all of those bland and boring in-betweens. We are to love the Lord our God with our heart and mind and soul and strength. Instead of trying to turn away from this world and find God somewhere else, instead of trying to disconnect from this world and this life, we are instead to see that our whole lives are one big God moment. We have been embraced and accompanied by God from our beginning and will be into eternity. And the truth of this covenant, the truth of this gospel, as Jesus tells his audience in our reading from John today, will make us free. Free to be in relationship with God. Free to live into God's vision of the kingdom. We don't have to earn it. There are no strings attached. The good news of the gospel that Luther rediscovered is that we are to love our neighbors not out of fear and scarcity, but with abundance and generosity. We can still find wisdom in the laws given to Moses and in the old covenants, but we find the truth now most fully revealed in the life and in the teachings and in the death and the resurrection of Jesus the Christ. We don't have to turn away from our human and earthly experience to find God. We can instead use this new law written on our hearts as a guide to promote connection with God, as a guide to promote a healthy and fully embodied life together. We get, when we get our faith right with God, this just naturally, spontaneously happens. You see, the Christian life is and will always be free. It can't be forced. And so today I want to close with what I feel like is one of the most important insights of the Reformation, that our faith should ground and root and connect and consume the entirety of our lives. You see, the way of Christ is not just a weekend hobby or a set of teachings. It's a way of being fully and properly human in the world. The life of faith, the life of true and radical dependence upon God, 
frees us because it lets God be God and it lets us humans be humans. And in the giving up of our lives in faith, we will find them restored to us in ways that exceed our imagination. So this is why at St. John's, the mission statement that sums up our core values is this. Let's see if you know the last word. Let's connect faith and life together. When I was discerning my call to come and minister among you, it was this statement that spoke to my heart, that drew me in. It's that statement which finds its expressions in our core values, which we've been talking about in previous weeks, from worship in the arts to discipleship to stewardship and congregational life. It is my hope that our ministry models and will continue to shine as a way for our community to come and practice a holistic faith. We want to be a place here at St. John's that fosters a connection between the faith we share and the lives that we individually live. We aspire to be a place that participates in the ministry of this new covenant, the one that Jeremiah speaks of, the one that's fully revealed in Jesus Christ, the ministry of writing the law and way of God on the human heart, of helping people to know God throughout their lives. I think this is what ministry in general and what I hope our ministry here is all about. But enough pats on the back now for St. John's. One final word to close. As Lutherans and as Protestant Christians, the Reformation leaves us with a powerful heritage of both honest self-reflection, this is why we begin with confession and forgiveness, but also a heritage of forward thinking. We look back every year on Reformation Sunday so that we can be driven forward into God's future. Over the past few weeks during the sermon series, we have looked within to reflect on our core values, to see who we are here as a community at St. John's. And it is now our prayer that as we go forward, we will continue to join together and reflecting on how the Holy Spirit is moving and leading us together and forward in ministry in this year to come, but also in the next chapter of the ministry of St. John's. Amen.